Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Our Strange Skies podcast. I am your host, Rob Christofferson, and with me, he's one of the hottest commodities in podcasting. Straight from the writer's room of Titan Season 4, it's Rich Adam. Rich, welcome back, man. And when you say hottest, I think we all know what you mean. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's there's no confusion there. Okay. All right. I just I, I, I feel actually now I'm embarrassed that I had to point it out. But as long as we're clear, I feel comfortable beginning. Dude, That's, yeah. This is a big one. This is a big one. This is one of the biggest I would say it's probably the biggest case of the last thirty years, aside from uh the New York Times stuff, which just uh you know, it's it's remained prevalent for the last four years but this case right here is it's something special and and the weird thing through researching this the main investigators of this case cynthia hind john mack they wrote barely anything about this case barely anything which is which really is, weird. I don't, yes. I don't, and by the way, I don't know. Cynthia Hind is new to me, and I am thrilled that this person is now in my constellation of, um, you know, ufologists. I'd never heard of her before. Had you? I did. I, I had bought her book. She wrote a book uh, called UFOs Over Africa. It was published in 1996. Uh, she's originally from South Africa. She, uh, she married a British pilot, moved to uh, England, and then came back to um, live in Zimbabwe for uh, the rest of her life. And from nineteen to from the late seventies, early eighties, up until her death in two thousand, she was kind of the only uh, person publishing anything from uh, Africa. That, I, that I've really been able to find. There have been, you know, some accounts. Uh, there was a guy uh, named Carl von uh, Vlierden who published some stuff. He was an amateur ufologist. Uh, he, one of the most famous cases that he published was this uh, abduction case uh, that uh, happened to this couple that was driving from Zimbabwe to South Africa. And like, it, it's a wild story, but basically like this UFO kind of guided their car for about 288 kilometers. And during that time period, there was an abduction that took place. But uh, Cynthia Hind is by and far the main person that has documented. She's documented a ton of cases from uh, the southern regions of Africa. Wow. that That's amazing because I know now I know you've been covering a lot of uh, cases in Africa and 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 in you and I share this, this sort of thirst for, for better knowledge of international cases, mm-hmm. which we have some access to, but not a ton of access to. And you just for cross-cultural reference, and especially, um, I mean, I know you and I were, were going back and forth with those, um, the uh, Space Age Indians books, mm-hmm. uh, where, where, you know, Native Americans share their stories. So this is really interesting, and I, I, I've got to get her book. That's that's amazing. Now, was she involved? Because some of the the reference material that you sent me was it was like UFO news mm-hmm. specifically. It was like a newsletter printed about cases in Africa, right? Yep. 
Yep. How long that did her. that thing go on? Was uh, that yeah, that was her. She published it uh, from the late '80s up until 2000. And that was this. Uh, oh God. Yeah, there was this email that I found when I was doing uh, the research for the presentation that I gave, and there was this blog post about this email that uh, somebody had received. I can't remember who it was, but it basically said UFO after news dies with Cynthia Hind, which is, <sighs> which is unfortunate, but uh, I, I kind of get it. She just dedicated a lot of time to UFOs. And uh, like, there's, I think over 20 some odd issues of UFO after news that is on the internet and you folks can read it. I've brought you, a lot of cases from uh, those issues, and this is probably going to be the last case from Africa I'm going to be covering for a while, just because it, I've uh, spent a lot of time there. It drives me crazy because there's so many people in the United States that are devoting tons of time to to uh, you know newsletters and blogs and and podcasts and stuff, and it's like really she died 21 years ago and no one has picked this up. No one has stepped in. in 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 Africa, as far as we know, no one has stepped in and really said, "Okay, I'm going to cover the Africa beat from Africa, and I live there, and I'm going to do it." Nope, I haven't been able to find anybody. And I mean, I've done, I've done the bare minimum of Google searches, and one thing that'll pop up if you say if you type UFOs Africa is. Hey, you remember this uh, event from uh, the aerial school? <laughs> That's about right. it. Yeah. Yeah. It is frustrating. You would think in 2021, in a world where connectivity is so available and, and there are so many people who speak multiple languages that the, that the intersharing of this kind of information from, from one continent to another You'd think it'd be a lot more fluid, and those channels would be a lot more open. But they, they, there's some, but it's it's not uh, it's not more than you would think. I would say no. And uh, the last ish, the last episode that I recorded was with uh, Red Pill Junkie. We we covered a case from Spain in 1989. It's called the Canil case, and uh. If anybody hasn't listened to that episode yet, please do. It is one of the most buck wild cases. It involves shape-shifting aliens, some weird-looking hovering giant, a UFO that was seen in the sky for over 15 days by the same group of four people. And uh, there are a history of sightings in this one area alone. And very few people know about it because it was not written in English until 2017. That's really the only when did it happen? 1989, September 29th, 1989. And the thing is, if you look at that case and you look at the Voronezh landing, which is a more well-known case, a, a like far more well-known case in which, uh, you know, there, there's a very uh, big public landing in the Russian park and people see this giant alien get out of a UFO. It has a short little robot that uh, walks around and it ends up making a kid disappear for a few minutes before it disappears itself. Like these are cases that are, are anomalies for the time period, given that, uh, you know, abductions were the big thing. 
uh, around that time, uh, cattle mutilations. You have uh, disinformation with Bill Moore, who finally presented yeah. his side and, and what he did. And not only that, uh, Roswell is this is the time period when it breaks big in 89 because that's when it appears on unsolved mysteries. And it's just, it recedes a a wide amount of exposure after that. So there are two very different cases that are, that are similar in many ways, but just different from the time period. One more well-known one, not as well-known because it wasn't written about in English. So like, well, but this is what drives me crazy. Like I I know everyone is excited about Tom DeLonge and, and uh, Elizondo and all of these guys and, and, and millionaires and billionaires and Bigelow, uh, you know, trying to, you know, throw, you know, millions and millions of dollars into equipment at Skinwalker Ranch to figure that out. And that's all cool. But I would give, I, I, I would, almost prefer to see all of those resources thrown to an, an international uh, cooperative effort just to record these things in real time mm-hmm. so that so that guys like you and I had had an, a, an up-to-date almost weekly sort of uh, uh, place to go to find out hey what's going on in China right now what did, did somebody see anything in Japan what about Peru and Ecuador what's happening in Russia what's happening in Africa and and knowing it in real time and just having all of this stuff because we do we we as human beings we go down these little cul-de-sacs because it's like oh right now is the time of abduction well is it you know mm-hmm. it's like to, to take another subject you know Right now is the time of the, you know, uh, Chicago area Mothman, mm-hmm. which is awesome. But but it, it almost feels like if we opened up our bandwidth a little, we might be hearing that Mothman is showing up just as much in other places. and But it's just not quite breaking through, you know, our, our attention filters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... And I think that speaks to the ufology of the past and and what was being covered and what received a lot of attention. And uh, one thing that I think gets lost in the shuffle is that if you go through the old periodicals like Flying Saucer Review, you see stories from all over the world. Not only that, you see translations of stories from multiple people. Gordon Creighton, who was involved with that up until his death, he knew two or three languages. He was translating Portuguese. He was translating French and and, and all this stuff. And we don't have that anymore. It's just, we have MUFON. We have New Fork. We have, uh, you know, government people. What's New Fork? New Fork is the, uh, what is it, North... Uh, it, it's kind of the other major reporting hub aside from MUFON. It, it's, it doesn't have as searchable a database, but it's a place that you can report your sightings to. Look, I think MUFON is great in a lot of ways in, mm-hmm. in terms of sort of what it functionally can do or does. I know mm-hmm. there's, you know, individuals within it that, you know, obviously are problematic and, and that's been covered in other shows. I don't want to get into that. But I, but I wish if, if there was a MUFON in every other country, and there probably should be, 
Mm-hmm. Then I want all of those MUFONs connected together. I'd much rather just hear what are people experiencing? And I'm far less interested in, hey, we've got a piece of metal that we're going to say came from a UFO. Yeah. Yeah, that's... And if you look, like, that was one of the... One of uh valet's last books is co-authoring you know on that subject so like oh my god people were pissed about that book yeah people were yeah yeah but i mean like yeah i guess it has its place but it's just like i i don't feel like the valet of the past is totally here but i mean like there have been uh, i think the place where this phenomenon has shined in the last few years has been in film you know especially with uh witness to another world um the phenomenon which is great which features some of the aerial school stuff um those have been good resources i just think that uh the, the you know bickering and the infighting online the uh it's great that the Gillibrand amendment passed and I hope a lot of good stuff comes from that. I don't know if we'll ever see that in our lifetime. Good if they do, but uh, yeah, it's just uh, the ufology of the past and the ufology of today look very different. It, it it just feels like a wholesale embrace of the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And, and I, it w- uh, you know, obviously I'll say it again, drives me up a fucking wall, mm-hmm. but that's why it's great that you're doing the aerial school landing because this is a case. This is in a way, if you look at it, the case, Yeah, children saw something. Those children are now in their thirties. Yep. They're still around. I mean, we, we can still go get those people and people have talked to them. Mm-hmm. And their 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 journey as an experiencer continues, and we have access to it in real time. I keep when I was going through the research material, I I I, I was so blown away, and I knew about this case a little bit, and you'll talk about it in detail. But for the listeners, I'd heard about it, but when I just did even just the the surface level research. I kept muttering to myself like Paul Newman in the verdict. There are no other cases. This is the case. There are no other cases. This is the case. There are no other cases. This is the case. There are no other cases. This is the case. It's like, this is the one we can still do something about this. These people are still out there. They're still alive. They're still engaged. And many of them are still willing to talk. Right. Yep. Uh, Some have uh, presented on their uh, cases, uh, their, their accounts, uh, just a few, a couple of years ago, there are folks that I've seen video clips from this past year talking about their stuff, um, which we'll, we'll, we'll get into in a little bit, but, uh, for the aerial school landing, the events begin actually two days before on Wednesday, September 14th. 1994 and from well, eight, you know, 50, you know uh, I, I, sorry, sorry to interrupt your 15 yeah. page outline that we've <laughs> talked about, you know, at length on Twitter, but, but let me just say, let me just jump in really quick. I'll, I'll, I'll do like, you know, like sort of the, uh, you know, the flash forward flashback. I don't know if people know what we're talking about, but just so you know, I'm just going to give you the headline here. We're, we're talking about a case where approximately 60 school children 
in the middle of the day, high noon, while they're out having recess. So listeners, picture yourself having recess at the grammar school, the elementary school that you went to. 60 kids witness a silver disc land. It's right there. Now, this is in South Africa. So picture more of a place like Arizona or New Mexico with big open vistas. They, they are able to see it and they witness a disc and at least two beings. In real time, they go and report it. The, the, the adults at the school hear about it. And it is investigated by professionals within 48 hours. This is a solid gold case. And if you guys are interested, you can go on YouTube and actually see these kids within, I think, 48 hours of their experience talk about what they experienced. So this is the the meal that we're getting to. But now let's go to the preface that Rob was talking about. Yeah, so uh, from... 8.50 p.m. to about 9.05 on September 14th. The skies over southern Africa, which included uh, the countries of Botswana, southern Zambia, Zimbabwe, and South Africa, they were bombarded with this display of lights in the night sky. And the first reports started to come in from Johannesburg, South Africa, near the uh, Jan Smuts Airport. The, the witnesses started to phone into Radio 702, which was a local radio station in the area, and they reported just a series of brilliant lights in the sky. From there, uh, witnesses flooded those phone lines, and the DJ working that night just started to record these phone calls and started to play them on air. And at around 9.04, Cynthia Hine, the main investigator of this case, heard a loud explosion. She ran outside, but she didn't see anything at the time. But shortly following the explosion, her phone started to ring off the hook. Investigators were reporting strange lights in the sky from multiple countries. And even the night editor of the local paper was fielding a lot of calls around this time. Cynthia Hind, uh, another woman named uh, Maria Sullivan and Cynthia's granddaughter, drove around the suburbs of Harare in uh, Zimbabwe and... Everything just kind of seemed to be calm, but these sightings of lights in the sky were initially explained away as meteor showers. They kind of looked like meteors. They're uh, what people were reporting were a bunch of strange lights kind of in formation in the sky. But um, uh, and this is a quote from UFO Afro News that uh, she printed uh, the general consensus of opinion was that the lights were preceded by a ball of fire, which seemed to have a point to it with a long tail of sparks. It was a white or goldish color and lit up brilliantly in the sky. Some people saw three huge lights at the front with smaller lights behind. The count on the smaller lights was varying from eight to 20. Many reported that the objects were traveling very fast from north to south. Others that it moves slowly, and one man actually walked along with it for more than 100 meters. So right away, we have conflicting reports of what this thing is, what these lights are. And just to get it right out on the table, wasn't there also some Soviet craft re-entering the atmosphere right around this time? Yes, there was. Uh, it wasn't a craft. It was... Um, 
I believe it was a satellite that had been launched on August 26th or 27th. And it was believed that on September 14th, it had jettisoned its nose cone. And that was what people were seeing. Does that make any sense? I mean, does anyone have any sort of, you know, ability to, to, to like tell us what that looks like and if it looks like what people were seeing? I think in certain uh, accounts, which I'll, I'll I'll get to in a little bit, there there are people that note that what they're seeing looks like a nose cone in many ways, and some of those people think that there's a plane that's crashing. So theoretically, it's possible that some people were seeing some kind of space debris. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So, so uh, many of the reports that came in came from uh, Lake Kariba. Uh, and this is a man-made lake in uh, north on the northwest corner of Zimbabwe. And it's known for its fresh supply of uh, bream and carpenta, you know, just fresh oh, fish. Love it. Love yep. bream. Carpenta, my favorite. Yep. Uh, and from the deck of the Cuddy Sark Hotel... A gentleman by the name. I mean, you know, come on. Yeah, really? It's named after a Scotch Cuddy Sark. Yeah. Okay. Wow. All right. We got a problem. Wait. So speaking of Rich, uh, before before we go further, uh, do you have a drink with you? I, I certainly do. Oh, it's delicious. This is one of my favorite new drinks. Can I tell you just a little about it? Yeah, absolutely. It's called Mad Love. It's from a book of drinks that are all sort of based on characters from uh, DC uh, comic books. Mm. This is uh, this is Harley Quinn's drink. It's gin, tequila. There is some Domaine de Canton, which is a ginger liqueur. And it's just this sweet, delicious kind of margarita-y kind of drink. Perfect for the aerial school landing. There we go. Uh, Rich always has the uh, alcoholic tie-in to every episode that he's on. So, uh, you know, great. Uh, I enjoy this energy that you're bringing to the table here. (laughs) (laughs) Would would that you were with me right now, Rob. One day. One day. Yes, one day we'll do this in person. So Rex Taylor, uh, he's he's at the he's on the deck of the Cuddy Sark Hotel, and at first uh, he sees what he th- what he thinks is a rocket, uh, but there's like this there's faint trail of sparks behind it, and it made him think that no, oh, maybe it isn't. So behind the object were rows of green lights and a second kind of smaller object. Uh, he saw them for about a total of fifteen seconds, which kind of fits in within the time frame of something that could be a meteor so another witness in the same location a gentleman uh, named alexander saw a very similar object he described a group of lights with orange tails behind them and around one dark mass there was a number of lights flashing around it the most dramatic encounter from lake kariba came from joe hensman she had borrowed her uh, flashlight from her husband to go aboard their sailing ship, which was docked right there. And as she moved towards it, she noticed this light uh, that resembled a plane to her. And this light appeared to be moving towards her, uh, possibly attracted to her flashlight. So 
she hid the flashlight uh, away. She was struggling at first because I guess the switch on it was difficult to operate. So uh, she eventually just like kind of put it against uh, her body and the object apparently turned away uh, and followed the tree line. And she claimed that it was several times bigger than a Boeing 747, which is huge. It's a passenger plane, you know, that's hard. I mean, it's hard. It's hard. I would have a hard time at any point day or night describing the size that like the relative size of an object that I saw in the sky. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, like, okay. I live in Los Angeles and I have often lived on um, sort of the uh, paths for the incoming planes that when planes come into LA, they sort of come down from the North over downtown then they curve out to the west, and then they sort of curve back up. So they, they go south, then west, then north. And that that's sort of the flight path. You can, and you can, you know, if, if you work in downtown LA, you can just sit, at, you know, as you're doing your work in your office all day long and just sort of watch these planes come in one after the other, and they all take this route. But when you think about it, those planes look very different every time you look at them from approach to when they're close to when they're going away. And I think it's really hard to describe mm-hmm. what the size, like if, if I didn't know what an airplane looked like, I would have a hard time saying, okay, that, that is a 100 foot long object or a 200 foot long object. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Uh, and, and one thing that I saw in the literature over and over again, people kept comparing these things to a Boeing 747. Uh, yeah, it it was the one plane that kept coming up over and over and over again is the Boeing 747. Now there was an airport in Harare, which, uh, is going to come into the ex kind of the uh, a possible explanation at the end here. Uh, but yeah, it, that was a weird thing that I kept seeing over and over again. Oh, look, l- 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 let me just be really clear. There is no explanation. There is yeah. no, there is no meteor shower. There is no airplane. There is no nose cone. When we get to that school and we get to that schoolyard and it's recess, there is no explanation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So most of the sightings that people reported lasted somewhere in the neighborhood of two and a half minutes, which is describing objects that are moving much slower than a meteor would. I've seen plenty of meteors uh, in the sky. They move rapidly. Most of the time, you're not going to see them for more than a few seconds. There was one that I saw uh, maybe... I want to say a couple months ago, and this was uh, supposedly seen like uh, people were reporting it in like Italy and stuff like that. It was large. It was huge. I don't know if it was like debris from something that was coming in, but it was like intensely bright white. It had this kind of uh, green. There was green on like the edges of this flame. And then uh, it uh, looked small at first, got huge and then went out. So you saw this like this was you were out looking at a quote unquote meteor shower. It, it, I think it was like more like one huge ass meteor because that's what it looked like. Okay. It didn't have, you know, multiple trails coming off it. It looked like just one huge object. 
Now, where you are, you're you're in upstate New York. You're you're in a place that is not near, like you're not in Manhattan. You're out where people would go to cut down on city lights to see stars, right? I live in the only place that I know of in the Adirondacks that actually has an observatory. Maybe Lake Placid does on the on the outskirts of town, but uh, we do have an observatory in town. And uh, if you look at a map of light pollution in New York, I live in one of the few places that gets very little just because it's a uh, right. the Adirondacks are an incredibly protected environmental place. So I imagine you living way out in the middle of nowhere in, in a, in a beautiful, super scary place where when you walk out at night, you can see stars in the sky. Is that pretty much it? It's close. I mean, like we're nestled inside like the woods, at least on my end of uh-huh. town. I, I walked to work this morning and there's about right now, maybe about an inch of snow on the ground. And oh my God. I was just walking down the street and I, uh, something caught my eye. I looked over and it was a skunk. <laughs> so <laughs> I only, I only know there's been a skunk when I can smell it. And that means somebody hit one in the street. And that's this it. is the only time that I have ever seen a skunk that has actually looked at me and like, Oh shit, it, this dude, I don't know what he's doing out here. And then he just turned tail and ran. I'm like, that's right. Don't get any closer. I'm not. I'm going to work, when, sucker. There's this. There's this song. Okay. There's this song that reminds me of you, Rob. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called "Meet Me in the Woods" by Lord Huron. Have you heard uh-huh. of this? Yeah. You know this song? Yes, I do. <laughs> this song is basically about a, an alien encounter. I mean, it has to be, right? Yeah, uh, I think that's fair. I, I don't think he. I don't think Lord Huron could get out of that. So, so we used this, I don't know if you know this, but we used it in episode one of season three of Titans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. It's featured prominently. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I didn't really like, I, I'm like, oh, this has a cool sound, but I wasn't really listening to the lyrics until later. And then when I really heard the lyrics and then read the lyrics, I'm like, oh, this is totally, this should be the, 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 the theme song to your podcast it's just (laughs) it's it's so about everything we talk about anyway i just made me think of you that's all okay uh i'm gonna recommend a song to you right now that uh i want you to check out it's a song by a guy named dan burn b-e-r-n it's called talking alien abduction blues And it's a oh well, st- well that's okay. That that's pretty obvious here. We're we're not we're not going metaphorical. No, it's it's a funny it's a funny song though. I think you'd dig it. But Is it, it's, it's supposed to be funny. It's sort of a Doctor Demento kind of thing. Uh do you know who Doctor Demento is? Yeah, I know like... who Doctor Demento is. Um, it's okay, inspired. It's inspired by uh, Bob Dylan's talking World War Three blues. So it's oh, uh, it's okay, an acoustic okay. number, but it's it's pretty funny. <laughs> I think you'll do it. Okay. So uh, the warden of the uh, Metsedona National Park claimed to see uh, an object in the sky for about two minutes. Uh, there was another witness. Uh, his name is Brett Ding. He noted an object that was not very high and it traveled somewhat slowly in the sky. And uh, another witness, Samantha Peck, described a circular-shaped bright light that trailed 
beautiful colors that moved slowly and flew just meters above her home. A teacher from Bulawayo, Vivian Pasco, described walking outside her home and saw the faint outline of a Zeppelin-style object with a golden light in front of it, while a group of red, green, blue, and yellow lights trailed behind. And she observed this object for over a minute until it disappeared over the low over the horizon. So oh these are like vastly different objects that people are seeing and people are reporting. And, and, and what you're going to get here is that despite how good and how important the aerial school landing is, the various accounts, they vary slightly in different ways, but not enough to make you think that these kids didn't see something. This is very much in that same vein of people seeing the potentially the same thing with through a different lens. So this is this is a perfect I mean, again, there are no other cases. This is the case. Mm -hmm. This is a perfect example of the blending between the physical and the psychic. And, and there's something great about watching kids try to describe something mm -hmm. like, like you, you and I know what, like, like we've heard so many people describe abduction encounters and cryptid encounters and, and ghost encounters. Mm -hmm. But when you're watching a kid do it, who does not have the full you know, access to, you know, perfect articulation and they're trying to describe something, you're yeah. almost getting a, a a really unfiltered view of what it's like to experience a a semi-physical, partially psychic event. The, the, you know, and and they they describe it really well. Mm -hmm. And they get the feeling across that it's sort of like this was happening, but then suddenly another thing was happening and then suddenly it was gone. And, and then I was really tired and then I went back to class. There's an innocence in the way that these kids talk about this case. There's also, uh, and it gets into the way that, you know, other witnesses describe this stuff. And like, there's a lack of language there that, is missing to describe a lot of what people see. And, and there are unusual words that are thrown out from time to time, like falling leaf pattern, whistling sound, uh, just very strange words that should not figure into a phenomenon that involves alleged extraterrestrials coming to land on some white house lawn or whatever. Yeah, Well, because we're trying so hard to make it physical and comprehensible so mm -hmm. that we can all understand what it is. And of course we are. I don't, I, I don't take an issue with the human impulse to, to, to categorize and physicalize and understand something in its material sense. That's why we do these podcasts. That's why you do the podcast. That's why I guest on the podcast. And we like talking about this stuff because it is one of the things in our human life that does not uh, conform to that. And scientists love having the CERN collider and being able to, um, you know, physically describe things down to, you know, uh, ultra microscopic levels. 
and that's good and they should, and there's a place for that. Mm. But there's part of a human experience that we are obsessed with that, that is the partially physical and the partially psychic, the partially consciousness based experience. You know, uh, you probably have it, Greg Bishop's book, which is entitled It Defies Language. Yep. Fun, I mean, I mean, there it, you go. Yeah. Fun fact, the uh, my last guest, Red Pill Junkie, designed the cover for that book. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I, it is killing me that you you had Red Pill on your show. I know, I, man. I'm like so interested in him as a human being and as a uh, researcher. And I've got to listen to it. I haven't heard it yet. But um, but yeah, it, it's it's it, it does defy language. And and I mean, there's points we'll get to later. But but you know what? Keep going. Keep going. You've got you're only half a page. You've got 14 and a half pages to go. Here we go. <laughs> so <laughs> some of the witnesses claim that they thought a plane was about to crash. And uh, because a lot of these objects maintained a low elevation, the word that they used over and over again is treetop level. So uh, Laura Tolly, she was from uh, Bulawayo. She was driving home when she saw an array of lights that appeared to be about 200 to 300 feet in the sky. And they, she said they looked like the nose cone of a plane. So Hmm, you have that i don't like that yeah so near uh deca which is another town seven witnesses saw an object that they described as big as you guessed it a boeing 747 moving slowly just above treetop level at 9 10 p.m so this is like five minutes after the aerial display is seemingly stopped um C.H. Alexander, he is a representative of civil aviation and a resident of Harare, Zimbabwe. He thought that he was witnessing a Boeing 747 attempting to land at the Harare airport. Uh, And he even knew the runway, runway six. That was when, yeah, that was when he noticed that there were no runway, there were no uh, lights, uh, runway lights on uh, the uh, plane. And it was flying at a very low altitude. He said it was just 20 meters or about 65 feet in elevation. And the object was trailing a healthy amount of sparks behind it. And it looked as if one of the engines was uh, apparently on fire. Alexander. Wait, saw- so wait well, hold, hold on. Hold yeah. on. This was where, where was he in real, like this object was not directly over his head, was it? Or was it in the distance? No, it was it was like it flew over his head. He lived in Harare. So he was like literally looking up 65 feet. That's a six story building. That is nothing. And if there was a plane flying overhead, 65 feet above your head. Yeah. Uh, Fun fact, it made no noise at all. There you go. Okay, thank you. My next question. Thank Mm -hmm. you. The prosecution rests. Yes. So uh, here's the kicker. Alexander saw this object for about five minutes. That is not a meteor. That is not a meteor. Yeah. Shut your mouth. Shut your mouth. That's insane. Wait a second. Well, hold on. Slow down. Hold on. Now, look, I'm enjoying a beverage, but I have a question for you. Yeah. I want to understand this. The guy is standing there and for five minutes, he's witnessing something that is 65 feet off the ground above Mm -hmm. his head, Mm -hmm. silently cruising past like a Macy's Thanksgiving Day float. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Yeah. Come on. Come on, everybody. Uh, yeah, it was later de- determined that on the night of the 14th, the nose cone of a Russian satellite uh, that had been launched on the night of August 26th and 27th had been jettisoned and had come down uh, over southern Africa. It uh, allegedly had landed northwest of Harare in uh, Karoi. But a Mr. Patel, he was a resident of a suburb just outside of Bulawayo, noticed uh, one large object in the sky moving at the speed of an aircraft at about 8.55 p.m. And the object that he described resembled a nose cone, like to the T. And uh, in UFO Afro News, there's a picture, uh, an image created for it. As for a, a possible explanation for an object that is supposedly the size of a Boeing 747, uh, there was a plane that was actually scheduled to land in Harare, but it was running about an hour late. It had landed at about 9 p.m. that evening and may have contributed to some reports. But again, these are very strange reports that... One, do not seem like meteors. Two, I don't know how a nose cone acts when it's re-entering the atmosphere. I just don't. Well, okay, exactly. Okay, so here's my point. I thank you for saying this because mm-hmm. th- think about it for a second. Like we, this is a. There are physical things that actually do happen that we know about, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, uh, uh, astronomical phenomenon, planets that are very bright in the sky on certain days, the, the, the sun and the moon that, that, you know, when, when they're at the horizon level, they appear larger. Um, are you telling me that there does not exist in the human catalog of knowledge, film footage of a nose cone reentering the atmosphere that we can use as a reference to see if this is what people saw. This is what we need to do. All this stuff about the, well, the military says that we were shooting off flares that night. Mm. Show me the videotape. Show me the film of what that looks like so that we can go, oh yeah, that was it. Chinese lanterns. That was it. Got it. The physical things that we know about have that footage ready and available so people can look at it and go, thank you. Now I don't have to worry anymore. I can sleep at night. Now I know what I saw. And for the people who saw something different, now we're, now we got it cornered, right? Mm-hmm. Here's an interesting kind of um, thought here. Uh, when uh, Ron Howard direct, uh, created uh, Apollo 13, and and you know how with uh you know like saving private ryan they talk about the beach scene at the beginning of the movie the way yeah. that they talked about the yeah. beach scene in that movie is the way that astronauts talked about the scene in apollo 13 where you're watching the rocket lift off and the way that he recreated that they actually so for used them, it that it was very accurate right Yes, it was very accurate. They were they were like, oh, we've never seen anything like that before. They actually used that footage, from what I understand, at NASA to show people. Oh my, that's, see, that's great. Because now we know what that thing looks like. Like, when you're talking about it, I'm thinking of Apollo 13. I'm like, well, the only reference point I have is that Tom Hanks movie. But I don't know if that's accurate. But what you're telling us now is, People who have experienced it, astronauts, they're saying that's accurate. That's what it looks like. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so everyone go see Apollo. By the way, go see Apollo 13 anyway. It's a pretty good movie. It's, it's actually great. a really great, great movie. It's one of my all-time yeah. favorite movies. I was obsessed with that movie when I was uh, I was uh, 12 when it came out. It's really good. If you yep. guys haven't seen it, see that movie. It's really good. At 2 p.m. on Friday, September 16th, 1994, Cynthia Hind received a phone call from Tim Leach, a senior correspondent for the BBC. He asked Cynthia if she knew anything about an incident that had taken place earlier that day at the aerial school in Rua. She hadn't, but uh, she would accompany Tim the following Monday to the school to interview the children who had witnessed an event that uh, used the words that the, the kids used the words terrifying and curious in the same breath. And, these are two sets of words that keep coming up over and over again. Terrifying and curious. Terrifying and curious. So Tim Leach had been a war reporter for years out of Zimbabwe, covering conflicts in Angola and Rwanda. And at 10 p.m. on September 14th, he had received a call from an immigration officer who reported a large object moving slowly over his home. Quote, it was so slow I thought they were meteors said the man. When that explanation didn't satisfy, he thought it might be a plane, describing what he saw as a Zeppelin-shaped object, which is, again, how Vivian Pascoe described the same object that she saw. So, as his mind continued to cycle through the explanations, he heard a loud bang after the object passed over. According to the immigration officer, air traffic control out of Harare confirmed that an object had been seen hovering over the airport before quickly shooting away in the direction of Bolueo and Mutare to the south. So how many of these, so the, the reports and, and the stuff you're telling us, are these things that were being reported after the more, the more widely known reports from the next day at the aerial school? Or are we hearing what people said that night? about what their experiences were. A lot of them are from that night. Cynthia Hine got calls for days after what, uh, uh, after Wednesday. So from not only that, stuff in the sky, but knew nothing about the aerial school, right? No, the aerial school hadn't taken uh, place in many cases, but she had been, she was receiving calls all the way up into the next week. Okay. Tim Leach started to call more people in the area and, you know, he he started to hear more of these stories about uh, a strange group of objects in the sky in the skies. So he contacted uh, Praxedes Desangre, a popular host for ZBC ninety two point eight, for more information. He kind of just like blasted out his details over the airwaves in the hope of finding out more information about what had seen. And tips just started to f- come flooding in uh, to him. The phenomenon had been experienced over a wide area. And according to some, the Praetorian government, which is in South Africa, was actually trying to suppress reports. But two days later, he would learn of the aerial school landing, and he started to make phone calls right after that. Now, the morning of Friday, September 16th, two days after the wave of sightings, was clear and warm. Skies were blue without a cloud in sight. This is the normal weather for 
uh, Zimbabwe, you know, pretty much year round. And uh, this is it, what I've heard. It's yep. beautiful every day. That's what I've heard. Yep. And it had grown hot very quickly that day. The students of the aerial school in Rua, a farming village 22 kilometers or 13 miles away from the capital city of Harare, which had only been established in 1991. Rua was not very old by this time. Uh, they were enjoying a 30-minute recess while a prefect looked after them. So one of the details that I hear podcasters and other people mention over and over and over again is that what were these kids doing outside unsupervised? They had a prefect. And a prefect was basically an older student that was responsible for the, the you know, the rest of the students. There was probably a few of them. So so these were like, just to be clear, I just, as, as a real life reference, these were like the older Weasley brothers yes. in the Harry Potter books. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. It, it, okay. Like the oldest Weasley who was a prefect when, you know, Ron and Harry right. first started. So these were not full grown adults, but they were the older of the oldest kids or maybe slight. Because I think the school only went up to like grade six or something where kids were maybe 12 years old. These were yeah. older kids? Uh, there were, yeah, they, um, they were great. They went from grade one to grade seven. So from six to 12. Okay. Okay. So picture, picture the older Weasley brothers as the supervisors of these children who then went, who then witnessed a, a craft landing pretty much in their schoolyard. Yeah, pretty much that this is the Harry Potter of alien stories. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That, that's a good way to get all the. The, the youngsters involved. Yeah, this is how we get them on board. According to Cynthia Hine, the school was a, quote, cross-section of Zimbabweans, black African children from several tribes, mixed-race children, Asian children with parents born in Zimbabwe, but whose grandparents had come from India, and white children, mostly Zimbabwean-born, but whose parents were either from South Africa or Britain, end quote. The only adult nearby was Allison Kirkman. She was a physiotherapist and a parent to one of the students named Fifi. Parents took turns uh, manning a little snack shop or what they called a tuck shop on one corner of the property. And shortly after 10, 15 a.m., one of the students ran up to the snack stand and excitedly relayed a story about, quote, a small man running around with a band around his head and in a one piece suit. Allison believed that this was a ploy to get her to abandon the shop so that student could raid the snacks. So she, her exact words were, pull the other leg. <laughs> well, okay. Now I'm, I'm going to step in. Mm -hmm. As the father of three boys, who I have se seen through preschool, through elementary school, middle school, and into high school, there's a way kids behave and, and, and adults who work with children become acquainted with this within the first 24 hours of working with these kids. You learn really quick. Mm -hmm. These kids are, look, most kids are lying sacks of shit. I think we can all agree <laughs> on that. <clears throat> and they'll, and they'll, they'll, they'll sell you out for a candy bar. We know this. These people and this woman who was manning the tuck shop 
um, had that, that, that's where they were coming from when they were hearing these first reports. So there, I guess there were not a ton of adults out there in that open area when these kids had this experience, but something that doesn't get talked about, like I, I, I almost think you have to factor in the missing time element mm-hmm. and, and try to try to sort of sort out how long it was that the kids were having the experience at what point were they released from the experience? So they were literally physically able to go tell any other person that something was going on. Yeah. Uh, that, that is one element of the story, which uh, there are a few odd ones that we'll talk about that um, hint to the strangeness beyond that uh, this case kind of dwells in. But uh, in this case, the teachers were all in a faculty meeting. And uh, according to Tim Leach, this faculty meeting was over uh, wages for the year. And uh, that is why there were no really any adults uh, on the field at this time. So So the aliens timed it perfectly. Exactly. So meanwhile, beyond these log barriers at the edge of the playground, in an area of tall grass dotted with small groups of trees and bushes with thorns, a small object landed. Some of the students described multiple objects in the area, one large one and three smaller ones, and a noise much like a whistling that accompanied it. Tertia N. claimed to see a pencil-like object in the sky beforehand. Uh, and one of the things that uh, Allison Kirkman noted is that at one point she heard a high-pitched whistling sound that was odd, but she didn't think anything of it at the time. Most of the students were first caught by something that shined brightly, a silver object. The shine was not a product of mere metal uh, glinting off the sun. Whatever this object was, it was casting its own very bright white light. The objects seen by the children varied greatly, though most described the disc-shaped craft, silver in color, Many of the older boys, over 12, described an object sitting on legs, including one that drew spider legs on it. And some of those kids talked about a flash, like they saw a flash of light. Mm-hmm. Which, which, if you think about it, I mean, tell me what you think of this theory of mine, Rob. But like if, if, if a disc is emitting a constant uh, bright light, mm-hmm. but if when you're in the presence of this thing your perception of time starts to get a little choppy. Yeah. Could your observance of a consistent bright light be later described by you as a flash of light? Yeah. I mean, there's going to be an account that we get into at the end from a student that underwent a regressive hypnosis that kind of gets into that. So oh, wait, which which kid was that? Which one was uh, that? his name was Francis. Oh, Francis. Uh, okay, so not okay. I've got, you know, Emily and Salma here in my notes. Yep. One student, Barry D, claimed to see three objects come into the school grounds along the power lines which ran along the edge of the school grounds, flashing red lights 
and they would disappear and reappear in the sky at a different position almost instantly. He observed this happening three times before the objects landed near some gum trees. Tertia N. also claimed to see the object uh, she had observed overhead land and then disappear. Descriptions of the beings seemed to be more unified, though there were some differences. The beings were often described as having dark skin, wearing shiny black tight-fitting wetsuit-like outfits. They were approximately a meter tall with large heads, large black eyes lower on the face, and a few of the witnesses described long black hair on the being's heads. That's the weirdest part. That's the that's yeah. the one. That's the weird one, right? Yeah, and and I think that's like kind of the key discrepancy with a lot of the descriptions that we're getting here because uh, most of them draw them as like grays. That's the best way to describe them as right. grays with dark skin. Some of the witnesses said, no, these things had very long hair. And there's kind of a um, I, I there was something that I, I was able to pick out uh, from just like watching. I uh, to, to give you guys an idea of what I did, the, the research that I did for this episode, I watched about five hours worth of YouTube clips. I watched or I've read. Uh, there's a chapter in Cynthia Hines' book dedicated to this case, the UFO Afternoon stuff. I read a bunch of other articles, but uh, I'll get into kind of like the possible discrepancy at the end. Um, even even Alan Greenfield was tweeting me about it yesterday. So, oh my god, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I mean, just in general, have you heard of long black hair in any other case? I've heard of long hair. I don't know the specifically black hair, but uh, there was an there's another case that I am going to be. I'm actually recording on the next Monday in which a guy was abducted by aliens that had long hair and long beards. So oh, oh weird. Oh, beards. Yeah. Oh when people talk about the Nordics, they talk about like this sort of blonde hair. Mm hmm. But I've never, I don't think I remember ever hearing about the greys having hair. No, they they usually described as, you know, bald. I think there are some accounts of people saying that they saw grey wearing a wig, if I remember correctly. But oh um, yeah, that it's it. That's that's horrifying. Yeah, because that gets into this sort of thing where, oh, they're trying to look more like us. They're trying to look human. And if mm -hmm. there's anything scarier than an alien, it's an alien that's trying to look human. Yep. That's some injured cold shit. That is some injured cold shit, and I'm not down with it. Um, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> some described seeing only, you know, one figure while others noted a being on top of the craft, sometimes sitting and sometimes running back and forth on top of this thing. A group of four kids, Candace, Clay, Haley, and Camilla, were playing uh, with the uh, the logs at the end of the property, which, which is like, it was demarcated as the boundary edge of the property. The school owned the uh, area where the object had landed, but the students weren't allowed over there uh, because it's just, you know, it's overgrown brush. There's no telling what's, you know, over there. 
uh, in terms of uh, Cynthia Hine noted that, uh, you know, there's no telling what's over there, you know, spiders and 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 scorpions and uh, there could be, you know, dangerous animals over there. Like, OK, let's let's take it easy. <laughs> well, it's weird. It's hard for us because, like, I don't really know. Like, I hear Africa and I don't know the difference between Zimbabwe and all of the other nations of Africa yeah. and what their expected flora and fauna is. So, so I don't really know what could be out there, but I, I would say, look, first of all, any listener who's listening to this can go on YouTube and, and actually see the yard. They, yeah. there's, there's footage of that, but to me, it looked very much like the Western United States Yeah, in a, in a, in a more rural area, literally anything from Texas up to Montana as far west as Washington and down south to California, where where you've got open like if you're not in a big city, you you could have a big open area with mountains way off in the background and and this piece of real estate, they just put down a bunch of logs to sort of say, okay, this is the yard, play here, don't mm-hmm. go beyond that. We've got to keep tra- it's a private school. Your parents are paying us to look after you. But beyond the logs, it's just more brush and trees and stuff i mean it's there's there really is no demarcation in any no. real it's not like a fence or anything it's just like a big open area it's like if you went camping and there was a big open area yeah right? yeah pretty much I mean, uh they called it you know uh bush which is what they call you know like a lot of areas with like high growing grass and bushes and uh there there were trees so that's pretty much what's over there so they don't I, I don't think a lot of the students had a perfect full on view all of the time, because if you look at a lot of the drawings that they make later on there, a lot of them are within trees. So. That's uh, one factor, but uh, the four witnesses, Candace, Clay, Haley and Camilla, they saw a maroon colored object in the sky and shortly after uh, a bright silver thing that they thought was glinting in the sun. They first assumed that it was glass, uh, a glass window reflecting off of the sun. But pushing past the barrier and looking closer, it was a silver object. So some of the students actually went beyond this barrier, even though they weren't supposed to. Um, they then heard a flute sound. And the four figure, the four witnesses noticed a black figure, uh, as they put it, running in slow motion. Candace was terrified and looked away. And when she looked back, the craft and the man were gone. And according to one of the girls in the group, the black figure popped up in front of her from the tall grass, which caused her to scream. That was not the only witness that this allegedly happened to. Um, I'll get into her story in a little bit. Well, I mean, I, I think when you when you look at these kids and what they're talking about, there's a lot of missing time. There's just a lot of stuff that they're not. Con- they're getting. They remember little bits and pieces, and there's a lot of stuff they don't remember mm-hmm. at all. And and it kind of, but but then if you look at it and say, okay, this is a school, and they have a schedule, and there is thirty minutes for recess, then here's what I'm thinking. Whatever went on, it didn't take longer than 30 minutes. In fact, it probably took a lot less than that. But 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 for for a 15-minute experience 
and you only remember a total of a few seconds here and there, mm-hmm. that's a big deal. Yeah. A lot of people's, a lot of these students said that this was occurring for about 15 minutes. And some of yeah. them said it only felt like maybe five minutes. So what is this distortion in time? You have these weird anomalies here where students are saying he's running in slow motion. What is going on with that? And they're sort of hovering. They're kind of hopping a Mm -hmm. little bit. Yeah. I mean, look, this is a full on psychic experience. This is not an experience that the human mind is designed to comprehend in total clarity and comprehension, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and so in a way what they're describing, even they don't, even, even though they don't know they're doing it is they're describing the very absolute base nature of all of these kinds of encounters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. One witness, Oriana uh, Fenwick, uh, she drew, Um, Because uh, what you're going to find later on after this event happens, the schoolmaster, the headmaster, Colin Mackey, pulls all these kids aside and basically has them draw what they saw. But Oriana Fenwick drew a large round object on the ground amongst a group of trees. Quote, I saw this black stick, a very thin, long thing on top of the silver thing. There were portholes running all around it, and at the top of the craft saw a figure adorned in polka dots with large eyes and and long hair. She also saw another figure running around on the ground. So uh, in a lot of the descriptions, that's what you get. Um, There's one figure, he's either on top of the ship, or he's right next to the ship, or... Uh, and there's this other figure that seems to be just kind of running around. There's one interesting report that Randall Nickerson, who has probably done the most with this case in the last uh, 12 years, I would say, 11, 12 years, somewhere is around this, there. Is this the guy who's doing the movie? Yes. He was asked by the John Mack Institute to produce a film. And he has talked to a number of the witnesses. And one of the witnesses said that they saw the being approach them and it would get to a certain point and it would disappear and it would reappear at the place where it began approaching him and it would come forward again, disappear and go back and start from that spot again. So it's almost like it's replaying itself. He compared it to like the cat from the matrix who keeps coming in the, the coming in the scene over and over again? Unacceptable. Mm. Unacceptable. That is terrifying. Yeah, it, we've got glitches in the matrix. It's bullshit. It's totally bullshit. But you know what it is? It's 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 the human mind trying to process something that it is not uh, used to processing. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely true. Yeah, uh, that's the way that I see it in this case. So. There are four main witnesses that I'm going to focus on here because what I've basically told you is about the majority of the um, the majority of what the students come forward with uh, with their testimony and stuff. And the first one uh, that I really want to focus on is a, a grade six student named Guy Gibbons. 
and uh, yeah. he was 11 years old at the time. He saw a craft among the trees, the silver disc-shaped object that had uh, stripes of green, black, and silver. He had just come out to the playground when he saw um, all these children just like swarming over by that barrier. A uh, guy approached two children who were crying and asked them what was wrong. They told him that they were afraid of the two little men that were running around. They were afraid that they would eat them, as they put it. Ooh. Yeah. Now, why would they think that? So, in Zulu mythology, there is a creature known as the Tokolosh or the Tokoloshi, which is kind of a water sprite. And according to Cynthia Hind, some of the parents would threaten their kids uh, you know, to, to make them, you know, behave and stuff like that. You know, things like, uh, if you don't behave, uh, the Tokoloshi is going to come and it's going to eat you. Shack, what are you talking about? <laughs> Here's an interesting analogy. So when I was growing up, um, my grandparents had gotten me this toy. It was called the animal. And the animal was basically like a monster truck, but it had claws in the tires these plastic claws that would like come out as the tires you know rotated i was deathly afraid of this thing i hated it so the thing is the animal would course, live in the cl- that's terrifying yes that's, that's a horrible gift i don't know why your grandparents would do that to you well they they thought i'd like it uh because uh at that time growing up i remember going to the video rental store and there was a um cartoon movie of uh the bigfoot the um the monster truck they made a cartoon movie in the 80s i used to rent that thing all the time and they thought oh i'd enjoy that no i was deathly afraid of it and whenever my mother didn't want me to leave my room she would put it right in front of the door (laughs) oh my god your mom was like some ninja level parent Mm -hmm. who was like okay I know what powers I have over you. I know what you want. I know what you're afraid of. I got the carrot and the stick. And frankly, that's all you need as a parent. And wow, boy, she used it. Boy, kudos to her. (laughs) Guy, he was one of the few witnesses that described the beings as having like lighter skin. Um, Now, was Guy white or was Guy ethnically? uh, Yeah, he was white. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just, uh, I'm just curious. I'm I'm literally just, and I'm not saying anything. I'm just curious as yeah. to whether there's any correlation between the ethnicity or the the race of the of the witness and how they observed the uh, the creatures. Um, yeah, I I don't know. I don't think so uh, because there is another witness that uh, uh, did describe the being as having lighter skin. Um, and I will uh, get to their account uh, shortly, too, because they're one of the main witnesses that I'm focusing on. See, here's the thing. The thing with these witnesses, and I think that the listeners, as they go and look at these YouTube videos, will agree with me, is that they come across incredibly believable mm-hmm. because they have British accents. With Guy Gibbons uh, and the... Um, he he's actually probably one of the most articulate of the children to talk about his sto- uh, what they saw. 
uh, he these, was these, these 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 kids. They're they're like the 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 roadcast of Oliver. Mm. I, I mean, <laughs> hello, sir. I saw a UFO, and you're just like, I'm in. I believe it. This kid, like, he's got a British accent. You can't question as an American. You cannot question a British accent. Uh, this is a uh, rule coming from a television writer, so you know it's true. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Someone walks in with a British accent, you automatically go, okay, they're not stupid. You know, you just, I don't know. What is that about us? We just, we hear the British, oh, they're smarter than us. They went to one of those schools where they wear their short pants and the little cap. And they do. At this school, they wear little outfits. I mean, it's, I, I mean, look, it is terrifyingly adorable, these kids. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a fact that I forgot to mention about this school. This, this school, uh, Rua is a, a farm village, but this school is a private school. And it is not cheap to send these kids to this school. So a lot of the students that were attending, which uh, this, stu- this school had uh, two, about 230 of them, uh, they were mostly from uh, rich farming families or farming families that had money. So wait, so their families were were in agriculture. These were not the children of diplomats or um, some um, of them were. Some of them were, uh, you know, I think some were like military kids uh, to some okay. certain extent, uh, and a lot of them were, you know, from the nearby farming villages. So okay. Yeah. Well, that, let, let me just tell you, they'll break your hearts. Yeah. Folks. Check it out. Guy, he described, you know, the, the eyes as uh, he he was like one of the main witnesses that said the eyes were lower on the face, which in, in many cases is kind of the, you know, what you get with descriptions of like grays and stuff. And they slant. Yeah, but it, but, it, but it makes sense if you mm-hmm. picture if they've got large heads. Right. Yeah. Doesn't that equal. A, a a a a report of yeah the eyes were lower on the head because the heads were fucking gigantic yeah they were they were pretty big so uh, I think it's important to note here that I don't think these kids had exposure to things like you know UFOs and stuff like that they may have had a little bit of exposure I don't know but but what they no they were saying they were saying UFOs and aliens they yeah. were saying that yeah um. That that is fair. Some of them were saying that. Uh, so some exposure, yes. But even in the late eighties, there didn't seem to be a ton of exposure. And I mean, I covered a UFO flap from nineteen seventy two, and it didn't seem like there okay. was like it, it. That seemed to be the biggest amount of exposure that that came to um, you know, in particular South Africa. Like that's where. I feel like a lot of the exposure to UFOs uh, was for people because it was just seen, they were seen by so many uh, different people during that flat. But, um, but Rob, don't you kind of feel like, like in, in, in terms of media exposure, which I, I, I'm not a big fan of that theory of, Oh, they saw it on TV or on a movie. And mm-hmm. then they thought they saw it in real life. I don't, I don't really give a lot of credence to that, but don't you kind of sort of look at it as like pre close encounters and post close encounters? 
I mean, because I that guess. movie was always used. That movie was everyone's like, oh well, yeah. Oh my God, Close Encounters comes out, and then everyone says the aliens look like the aliens from Close Encounters. But what nobody, what nobody takes into account is that Spielberg and the rest of them did research. The whole reason the movie exists is because they were those people, and Spielberg specifically were fascinated by the stories that people were telling of these little big-eyed aliens. Mm-hmm. He didn't make it up. No. He was reporting and he was reflecting what he had heard and what many, many, many UFO investigators and abduction investigators had been reporting on for a long time, right? Yeah, by and large. I think that's I think that's true. I think the the main discrepancy is that the the, the main alien at the end, he's not sure he's really tall. Well, yeah, and of course you get that. But what's great about these kids is they were like, "Hey, the, the, well, I, I sort of felt like." Tell me if you if your research um, backs this up because I did maybe ten percent of the research you did. But um, but the the I think the most like like if you took all the kids and all the things they said, the thing that came up the most was the the black tight fitting suit that was shiny. Mm-hmm. Yep, that was sort of like number one along with big eyes and then but then there were kids who clearly who said it had long black hair now i haven't seen that in a movie i haven't seen i haven't read about it in popular fiction i and i've certainly never heard about it in other ufo accounts so when you have a detail like that and thank god we do to me that's your watermark. That's the thing. That's the thing in movies. You know, in the movies about serial killers where the cops are like, all right, he, you know, he leaves the ace of spades on all of his victims, but that's the thing we're not going to report. So mm. when all of these people, when, when we get false confessions, if they don't mention the, the, you know, the ace of spades on the body, that's how we'll know the, 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 the real ones from the fake ones. Yeah. The, these little 10 year old kids going, the alien had long black hair to me, that's the ace of spades. That's that is kids saying as best they can what they saw. Mm-hmm. I don't know if those aliens had long black hair, but but some of these kids, and not all of them, because they didn't, they clearly didn't all get together and go, okay, here's what we're gonna say. Yeah. Some of those kids said these aliens had long black hair. And that's just to me, that was a new one. And that's the thing that made me feel like, okay, what we're hearing are genuine people talking about a genuine experience of something. Another thing that you don't see, uh, another term that didn't come up with these cases, and I think that lends credence to it, these kids didn't say that they were grays, which is largely what they look like. Yeah. So there isn't that. And they never never used a movie for, they're not, oh, they were like the creatures in Mm -hmm. that Spielberg movie, The Close Encounters. Right. By the way, you're welcome for my brilliant British. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're getting premium Rich Haddam. We're getting like <laughs> Rich Haddam if he had become an actor. Absolutely. <laughs> Hello, governor. <laughs> going full I'm cockney like, on that. <laughs> I'm going like like Dick Van Dyke is is like a genius compared to the shit I'm spewing out. But yeah, <laughs> the, 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 these kids, you look at their faces. I mean, again. Rob, I don't know if you've got like little nieces and nephews or stuff, but I look at these kids and I've got kids of my own and I talk to a lot of kids and there is just nothing about these kids that feels like, ah, 
you know, we're taking the piss out of you. We're mm-hmm. having a we're having a larf. They're not doing that. These yeah. kids are are just trying to, and they're like they're like aware that grownups are listening. So it's a little bit weird. And they had an experience that scared some of them a lot. But these kids, God bless them, they're really they're like they're really trying to answer the questions. And we see Cynthia interview them, and then later we see John Mack. Right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Later on. Guy claimed that he saw the object itself depart and head down towards the valley, which is kind of a little different than what most of the people said. Most of them will say that this thing disappeared uh, because there is kind of one triggering event that I'll get to um, after the section that I'm here. Uh, I think the saddest thing about Guy and, and something that Cynthia High notices is that his parents didn't believe him when he came home. Oh, really? Yeah, they did not believe him. And ever? he even, yo, he even talked about, he's like, I'm never talking about this ever again. I mean, seriously, this is, this is the problem we have in our culture is mm-hmm. hearing an experience that is outside of our experience. And because it's disturbing, we say bullshit. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if you, you know, find there are, because there are clips out there of, uh, the kids, uh, older now, in their 30s, talking about their cases. There's no clips of Guy Gibbons. Um, so I, I, I'm i sure Randall uh, Nickerson talked to him. Uh, but, uh, oh, um, and, and another interesting fact about Randall Nickerson, he was, an actually, he was actually an experiencer that worked with John Mack. Wait, really? Yes. He was actually, he's one of the cases featured in Mack's first book, Abduction. And is that how the John Max Society knew about him and yes. go to him to? Okay, all right, yep. that makes sense. The second witness I want to highlight here is uh, Salma Sidik, who uh, she was born in Harare and, and she grew up in Zimbabwe before moving to England and then to Seattle. Uh, she grew up with uh, just three TV channels and spent much of her time playing outside and reading books. Uh, something that uh, her parents, you know, actively um, encouraged because, uh, you know, she didn't want her, her kids. They didn't want their kids, you know, sitting in front of the television, rotting their minds, you know, like you right. do to children, Rich, like you do. <laughs> yeah, because she was a girl, not a boy. So she was good. Story of my life, I'd give anything to have a daughter. No, I got three sons. Thanks a lot. <laughs> So at the time of the incident, she was 11 uh, years old, a grade six, like Guy Gibbons, and she spent uh, recess playing with her friend Emma. And at around 10.15 a.m., Emma pointed out a strange silver thing that was shining from uh, about, uh, I think in later interviews, she described it as like a few uh, football fields away. So it was a bit of a distance. (laughs) At first, was that American football or British football? Uh, I think American football, uh, because I think she was uh, talking in yards. So, you know, uh, I think that's uh, that's what we're getting at, because she did, she she does live in America, I think, even to this day. OK, all uh, right. So, so no, no, none of this Ted Lasso bullshit, right? No, no, we're not. We're not. Hey, listen, it's a great show. <laughs> I love that show. It's, it's so great. Um. <laughs> At first, they thought that uh, it was some granite rocks, 
uh, in the area, but they quickly dismiss that thought because the granite rocks have never shined like that before. And then children started to gather around and uh, Emma took Selma by the hand and they started running forward. That was when they saw the man. All time seemed to stop and all sound fell away, you know, like a moment separated from every other moment going on around them. Selma described this being as having human-esque qualities, meaning that they had two arms, two legs, and a head. The being was approximately four feet tall. The only visible features on the face were the eyes, which were like big black pools of inky darkness. Okay. So this is how people describe meeting me. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You are the big black pool of inky darkness. That is Rich Adam. (laughs) All time stops. Yes. Uh, I I appear humanoid. (laughs) And and they remember my eyes. So just, you know, factor this in, man. I'm just saying. This is, yeah. um, We're bringing you a real time experience of meeting Rich Adam. So that's right, guys. It feels like I'm approaching, then I'm close, then I'm approaching again, then I'm approaching yeah. again. Then later on, you don't know what happened and your parents don't believe you. You're pretty so sure you, you interacted with them for 15 minutes, but it felt like five. Okay. <laughs> like five. It just, it goes like that. It's, this is okay. Good. I just, you know. At the boundary logs, they separated Salma and Emma from the being that appeared in front of them and somewhere in the neighborhood of about one to two feet away is what they claimed though Selma didn't receive any message while they were standing there. Emma did. And this message was about the misuse of technology. And there's a word that uh, pops up uh, with these children uh, with a couple of them in the interviews that I listened to uh, watched and, and stuff. And it's a word called technologed. Which is yeah, a very what? strange word. Why that that's not a word that we use. Is that a, I mean, is that a real word that they use? Or was I, that just kids misusing that, uh, a word? It ca- yeah, it came from multiple kids. There were a couple of them that said this. Um uh, because uh we're getting into the territory where some of these kids started to receive messages uh with through interacting with these beings. Yep. Uh, the entire time, Selma and Emma, they were kind of just paralyzed to the spot. And Selma kept thinking about her siblings who were on the playground. She had a brother and sister uh, that were younger than her. Um, and she f- just like felt like she needed to get to them. But uh, And when the paralysis finally broke, she described feeling like drained, like she was just like yeah. tired and out of energy. Um, and then she ran to her siblings well, when she in in the in the interview that that she did as an adult, mm-hmm. she talked about how difficult it was to sort of break eye contact with yes. this uh, being, and and how it felt like it took every ounce of energy that she had, and that once she was able to finally break that eye contact, then the telepathic contact stopped because. She reported telepathic communication with this being, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and well, uh, it wasn't off. it wasn't communication with her. Uh, she's not sure if she received a message, and and I think that's one thing that uh, like lends credibility to her is that even all these years later, she's not trying to embellish it. 
She's not saying, I, you know, I didn't receive a message. I don't think I received a oh, message. Right. But her no, friend right. did. Was, I think, yeah. And there was another witness, Emily Trim. Yes. Who got like that. She was the one who got like a thousand images. Yes. Like just like flipping, flipping, flipping through her mind. Yes. But, but I do find it interesting that Salma. Well, well, okay. Well, okay. So here's the thing. Spoiler alert. Salma did not receive any telepathic communication from the alien, quote unquote. Okay. Mm -hmm. Got it. But it took all of her energy to break eye contact. And she did. And now later as an adult, fairly recently within the last few years, she's talked about when questioned the notion that she might be curious to do hypnotic regression with someone she trusts mm -hmm. because she thinks something did happen. Yep. So her report that nothing happened feels like, well, that's, that's what she remembers consciously and is able to remember consciously, but something else may have happened. Yeah. And only under other circumstances, may we find out what that is. So I'm very curious to, if she ever did or will ever do that regression or meditation and try to, you know, recover some of these memories. Yeah. Maybe someday down the line she will. And, uh, but Rob, we've got these people. They're alive. They're not old. No. Like we could go get these people. Like you could go get Salma. We should have her on the show. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll try and uh, reach out and see. Because uh, I think it'd be amazing to talk to some of these folks today. Salma, if if you or any of the other kids are within the sound of our voices, Rob certainly. I can't I can't vouch for myself because you know I'm a lunatic. He's an but, inky pool of blackness. Yes, I mean I'm an inky pool of blackness. But Rob is someone you should talk to and that your friends should feel safe talking to. And if you're hearing this or anyone who knows any of these people please reach out to the podcast and let us know if you're willing to talk because what, what you experienced and, and what you have within you is, is, is important and, and can help people. And, and if nothing else, help other people who've had similar experiences and would really benefit from hearing your experience from your mouth. So there you yeah. go. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm it out there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, our strange guys at gmail.com. Uh, check the show notes for links to social media profiles. Reach out. You, you're the the podcast is yours uh, to tell your stories, and uh, yeah, it's it's a free and non-judgmental space. So, yeah, that's for sure. Selma described how frightening her experience was uh, as as a child to Cynthia Hine, and in the drawing that she produced. A lone figure looks on from the tall grass. She described how the figure ran in slow motion. In the days and weeks following the event, she was interviewed multiple times and felt like she had to keep telling her story to the grown-ups because they just wouldn't believe her. Uh, and that's like an interesting perspective for a kid to have is I keep, I, it's like I, I keep having to tell the story because people won't believe me. Right. Well, I mean, Guy Gibbons' parents didn't believe him. Yeah, exactly. She had a dream a few weeks after the aerial school landing in which she found herself floating uh, in the dream. And when she woke up, she was on the floor next to her bed. And she claimed that that had never happened before. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, no wonder she's 
she's a little bit curious slash uh, apprehensive mm-hmm. about what what further experiences it is that she's having or or what that initial encounter was truly about at its core. Yeah. And again, I want to emphasize, like, uh, if you watch the YouTube clips that I'll put in the show notes uh, and you there's like um, there's a two hour uh, clip from a presentation that Randall Nickerson gave at a um, UFO conference and Selma Siddick was there and there was an eventual Q&A. And every time, you know, someone asks a, a question, she's not trying to embellish she understands like what the limits of her experience is, and she's not trying to go beyond that at all. And she's not even trying to yeah. speculate at all. Yeah. Which I think says a lot about her. And, you know, to, to be fair, and I joke about how, you know, the kids with British accents seem smarter, but I will say these kids do seem really bright, really self-possessed um, as, as adults. When we hear them talk, Salma primarily among them sound well-educated, well-adjusted, mm-hmm. and and they sound like people who are who are curious about their own experience. And this experience occurred decades ago. No one has come forward and said, "Okay, okay, we were all joking. We were kids. It was it was almost Christmas break. We were bored." No one. And and what I love is that one of the teachers said, "Well, that's what usually happens. The kids mm-hmm. do something, and and and." Very quickly, like within the hour, they're all like, okay, we were just kidding around. Ha ha ha. Because they want, they want that tension to break. Yeah. They, 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 they want it because they're testing boundaries. That's what kids do. They test boundaries by, by telling outlandish stories, see what the parents will believe, see what the teachers will believe. But the much stronger impulse is to reestablish safety and, and, um, and, and parameters of their own reality. So they'll, they'll, they'll tell the lie or the joke or the prank, but then they'll reveal it because they actually do want to be in that safer place. These kids didn't because it really happened and they didn't get the benefit of ever being able to retreat to a so-called safer place. The next witness, Liesl, like the other two, she was uh, an 11 year old in grade six she saw, in her words, a silver object on the ground and two beings that hovered instead of walked. And like guys, she described them with lighter skin tone, wearing black suits with big black eyes on their face. She received a message about the harm that we as humans are doing to the planet. And in an interview later with John Mack, she said that we were, quote, too technologed. He was just staring. Mm-hmm. And we, like, tried not to look at him, because he was quite scary. What was scary about him? His big eyes, I think. I think they, I think they want um, people to know that we're actually making harm on this world, and we mustn't get too technologed. What gave you that feeling? I don't know. But it came through to you when you were with the... With the strange being? Yeah. When he was looking at me. When he was looking at you? Yeah. It came through my head. Did it, to- like, through words or...? My conscience, I think. Your what? My conscience. It came told- you through your, your conscience told you? Well, the thing was looking at me. While it was looking at you, your conscience told you that. 
Had you been a person that had thought a lot about what we're doing to the earth before that? No, only after this. Only after this. Since that day, Liesel has stuck to her story. And again, she she's um, on the same clip with Selma telling her story. She talks about the message that re- she received, but she doesn't embellish it. She doesn't go further. And it, and it almost seems like, you know, she may even be have a tough time recalling it, but she's like, no, I received a message. This is what I got. And it, it was nothing more than that. What's interesting about her is that she became a support worker and she works with uh, the disabled. So maybe that had something to do with her experience, but. Does she say that? Does she say that something about her experience led her to a different career choice? No, not necessarily, but I think that's something that some people point to. Um, yeah. Uh, the final witness uh, here, Emily Trim, she was uh, eight years old in 1994. She was born in Canada before her, ma- her family moved to Zimbabwe. She attended aerial school with her brother and sister, uh, and during recess, she would hop along the boundary logs with one of her friends. On that Friday, she heard a high-pitched sound that drew her attention to a craft in the sky. Moments later, there were two beings on the ground, described as they have been described many times now. Only they were hopping and jumping around, much like the girls were. Like a cutscene, the beings had moved to within arm's reach of the two girls. Time slowed, and they started to receive telepathic thoughts. Images that Emily described as coming from the man's eyes and entering hers. They each received a different message. Emily's was more about the uses, uh, uses and misuses of technology, where her friend received messages about the impact that humans were having on the environment. Today, Emily is actually a painter, and uh, you can follow her on Instagram. She posts um, illustrations, uh, like a, a lot of them every day. Um, and, uh, a lot of them are kind of like, they're like landscapes as I, uh, she posts them as illustrations and they kind of look like, um, uh, I don't know what way to describe them, but they're like patterns and, and stuff like that. They're really interesting. Sometimes she draws like figures in them. There was one that I saw the other day of, of, uh, two like gray, like beings, like hiding behind flowers, which is interesting. Um, wow. But she she seemed in in the video clip that you sent me a link to, Mm -hmm. she she was standing in front of a crowd of I I mean, I have no idea how many people, maybe not not more than what would be in a hotel conference room, 30 or 40 people, maybe. But she seemed she seemed very emotional and sort of like uh, anxious or nervous, talked in a very quiet, uh, rapid voice. Mm hmm. She seemed like she was still having an emotional response to whatever she experienced that day. I don't know if she's had more experiences. But uh, she she did, she did you know she actually didn't seem say super that comfortable you know yeah she did say that uh, she uh, in that video she said that she had further experiences with uh, green beatings that look like grace is what she said. So do we know if Emily or Salma specifically? were were among those children who were interviewed that very day by Cynthia Hind or guy I believe or so or any of them I believe I wish so I knew which was which you know um 
the thing about Cynthia's time with the kids, she talked to many of them on the phone afterwards. She only got an hour in person with them. That was it. Oh, my God. Because I think Colin Mackey was protective of the students, which, you know. That was the guy, the bearded guy. Yeah. Yeah. So the students that were outside viewing this ship and the beings, they all seemed to be just kind of stuck in place, paralyzed to the spot, you know, gripped by, again, fear and fascination. And it wasn't until one of the prefects ran inside and asked a teacher to ring the bell. At the chime of the bell, everything seemed to return to normal. Some of the students said that the object and the beings disappeared at the sound, as if they did kind of warded them off. Then, I love that. And then the students oh. all kind of ran for it. Their voices filled the hallways, and the teachers came running out to stories of, of a strange craft and stranger beings. It's great how the bell... Like when you're a kid, the bell is everything. Like you really are a dog. Um, it, Saved by the I, bell, man. But, but you know, uh, A Christmas Story, you've seen that movie, yeah. right? Yeah. And 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 the, the one kid's got his tongue stuck to the, to the, uh, pole. To the, yeah. to the pole. And then the bell rings. And he's like, ah, ah, and, yeah. and Rafi's like, but, but the bell rings. But rang. the bell rang. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I, I'd love to help. I, ca- I can't help you. The bell rang. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, that's the, that's the pervasive force in their lives. The bell rang. I have to leave. I hope you don't die. Best of luck to you on the flagpole. You're uh, you're alone in in this endeavor. So, uh, headmaster Colin <laughs> Mackey. So, like these kids just came running inside, and they were frantically telling their stories. So, uh, headmaster Colin Mackey pulled all of the kids aside and had them draw what they had seen. And uh, according to Randall Nickerson, they also wrote in their journals about what they oh, had seen. Thank God. Thank God. That is brilliant. That's genius. That's what everyone should do. If they can, if you've got the emotional wherewithal, draw a picture and write in your journal. Yep. Uh, and the kid, there were 42 drawings in all, and many of them depicted disc shaped craft and like the, the aliens that they drew. Most of them kind of seem featureless, which is interesting. They didn't have a lot of features in the face or anything like that. Tim Leach, you know, sprang into action as soon as he learned about what had happened. He phoned Cynthia Hine um, the afternoon of the 16th and asked her uh, if she knew anything about that landing that had taken place. And through her advice, he sent John Mack. Uh, and to my good friend, Brian Hasty, if you're listening to this, he sent him a fax. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> with some uh you know handwritten notes uh and you know this was on you know Cynthia's advice because Tim really was in you know enraptured by this and everything that was going on and he's like I got to talk to somebody so she's like talk to John Mack so uh you know he does and and we'll get to John Mack in a little bit but uh, he had made arrangements with Hine to visit the school on the following. Uh, I, it was either Monday or Tuesday. So it was like, uh, I think like 72 hours after it had happened. And uh, this is where, you know, Hind, uh Leach and uh, a friend of Cynthia Hines, Gunter Hoffer, uh, who had like, he had homemade like Geiger counters that he brought out and, and, and oh, stuff. Boy. 
that that guy seemed a little that now that guy that 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 guy seemed uh, uh, like a an eccentric individual. I <laughs> seemed all right. He was all right. So um, they didn't building, text any. You're, but you, if you're building a Geiger counter, come on. I mean, that's awesome. But man, that's not everybody. Yeah, no, that's fair. There was no background radiation uh, of any kind detected. But it's interesting to note that uh, one thing that Zimbabwe is allegedly rich in is uranium. So if they had detected radiation, you know, it could potentially be uranium because there are uranium mines in Zimbabwe. So do you think that's what the aliens wanted? Well, if they wanted uranium, then they probably shouldn't have visited some kids looking for it. But maybe you never know. (laughs) A lot of the students that Hein talked to in the footage that was shot for the BBC who did air a piece on this, she mostly talked to the 6th and 7th graders. Um, There was one boy who indicated in his drawing that he had actually seen an object on the day before, the 15th. Um, And he drew it as like a cigar-shaped or like a cigarette-shaped, I think they said pencil-shaped, actually, object. Uh, And... uh, he later, you know, said like, no, it wasn't that it was actually like a disc shaped object. But um, Guy Gibbons noted that at the site of the landing, there had been burn marks that they visibly saw from the edge of the playground. But they had apparently disappeared not long after uh, the craft departed. There was also a number of ant hills, but there weren't a lot of ants. And uh, this was something that Guy Gibbons pointed to. He's like, normally over there, you'd get, you know, eaten up by ants over there. But there weren't a lot. So uh, he noted that there were some dead ants on the ground. But uh, I think it was Colin Mackey who pointed to the fact that there was kind of a drought in the area at the time. So that may be the reason why there were dead ants. So interesting Mm. thing, but. Hein came away from the interviews feeling like the students had a genuine experience, but like most, she couldn't fully quantify it. She didn't know really what to do with it from there. But from her trip, she learned of additional sightings that had taken place the day before the aerial landing. Two of the students, Tertia and Maud, had seen a long, thin object similar to a cigarette over the school on the 15th. Another student, uh, Tanatsa, saw an object in the middle of the road on the way home from school. And in fact, uh, her mom, when she was driving her home, actually had to swerve to avoid it in the middle of the road. Hmm. But the most dramatic encounter in the area occurred on the evening of Saturday the 17th, the day after. At around 8 p.m., the uncle of one of the teachers who drove a school truck was delivering some supplies The dirt roads were dark, so like his headlights were all he had to see. But uh, at one point, they fell upon two figures in the middle of the road, and they, quote, looked like dead people. Oh, boy. Even in the headlights, these beings, whatever they were, they did not break away. They kept walking towards him. He actually ended up swerving his vehicle and crashing into a tree. Okay, that is terrifying. Mm-hmm. And it uh, apparently knocked him unconscious. A few months later, John Mack, the Harvard psychologist, 
Polar Surprise winner and abduction researcher would fly to Africa. Uh, first, he met with Zulu, Zulu medicine man Credo Mutwa, who is a controversial figure um, that David Icke basically used to prop up his racist theories about uh, shape-shifting reptilians. So, yeah, um, that is what it is. But okay. is that more of a David Icke thing, or is that? I mean, is that an indictment I, of David Icke, or is that an indictment of the of that guy? There were uh, all right, all right. Full full admission here. When a few years ago, I had watched part of a David Icke six hour goddamn DVD. I that I, reg- I remember you talking about. Yeah, this. <laughs> and like. This was in the mid '90s, so like it's really bad. Uh, in the opening title sequence, there's images of rods. I mean, rods were a hot button issue back in the day. But um, the thing is, is like there were things that Credo Mutwa said in that thing that are just absolutely ridiculous. He talked about how he had to eat the hand of a dead reptilian to learn the truth about the reptilians, and just a bunch of crazy ass fucking shit. And some of it, you know, ended up. Uh, into some homophobic territory and so to me i i don't want to i'm not going to get too far into this credo moot wash you know stuff but oh i got it got it mac would later go on to uh, a few days later would uh go on to rua and interview uh, some of the children but 1994 was a busy year for mac he had published his first book on the abduction phenomenon titled abduction uh the book chronicled Mac's work with 13 experiencers eight men uh, and five women in the lead up to the book's publication mac made a number of public appearances to promote it including one on the oprah winfrey show which was uh contentious to say the least um i mean it's oprah she wasn't very fond of experiencers but she kept having them on her show so you know really oh i i was not aware of that was she very skeptical and sort of like Oh yeah, dismissive mocking or something. Oh yeah, she um, in 1990, I believe it was. She had you know, and and another controversial figure, Ed Walters, on her show. Ed Walters is kind of a you know a pariah now in the in the abduction world. She had him on. She kind of berated him. She also had Philip Class on to berate him, which was interesting. But hmm. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think she just doubted a lot, but you know, that is what it is. But in 1994, she had Mac on and, uh, uh, in, uh, Ralph Blumenthal's like biography talks about how like John Mac is desperately trying to get over a, a, a point toward the end of the program and there's like credits rolling through him and everything. And I'm like, yeah, it's an Oprah move right there. Okay. <laughs> I remember that. I mean, I grew up with Phil Donahue. Do you remember Phil Donahue? Yeah, I remember Phil Donahue and that gray hair of his. Yeah, yeah, he was one of the first. I mean, I mean, without Phil Donahue, there would be no Oprah Winfrey. Yeah, but I remember that weird thing they would do. Like, like it felt like the show was still going on even as it stopped broadcasting. Like they were yeah. running credits, but questions were still being asked and answered. And there was always that weird feeling of like, Oh, I wish it was longer. Oh, just stay there. I want to hear more. You know, yeah. it was, it was a pretty, uh, uh, canny bit of, uh, stagecraft they would do. 
Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Wow. Okay. So Oprah did it too. All right. Yeah. I didn't watch Oprah as much as Phil Donahue. So the publication of the book was met with many criticisms. Uh, critics for Time and the New York Times questioned his motives and his methodology. Harvard itself was coming under fire, too, as multiple inquiries had been made about Mac's work, and Harvard Medical School appointed a committee to review his work. In particular, they were concerned with his patient billing practices, informed consent protocols, and his methodology. Yeah, whatever. There are some things that I think Mac did that were a little shady. He did not have them sign consent forms, and their billing practices, because this was supposed to be a study, but he did treat some of them. So um, he did charge them for services. So I think that's where a lot of that comes into play. Eventually Mac would hire an attorney to help him navigate these proceedings. uh, A guy named Daniel P. Sheehan, who had graduated from Harvard law school, Harvard divinity school and stuff like that. So Mac basically went to Africa to get away from everything at Harvard at the time. So He had started to conduct research on the cultural differences in the abduction phenomenon worldwide, making trips to Puerto Rico and Brazil as well. And accompanied by researcher Dominique Kalamanopoulos, the two landed in South Africa and recorded a TV program called Agenda, which featured a segment uh, on the abduction phenomenon. On November 30th, the pair gave a presentation in Harare in early December. They, uh, visited the aerial school. Mac interviewed Colin Mackey, the headmaster, and a number of the children. One of the children interviewed was 11-year-old Liesel, and she said that uh, she was scared because she never saw a man like that before. Quote, Sometimes I think that they want to tell us something. Something in the future. Maybe they were telling us that the world was going to end, because maybe we've got to look after the planet, the air, properly. End quote. She told Mac that when she went home later that day, she felt horrible, in particular for the environment. Quote, it was like the world. All of the trees would just go down and there would be no air and people would be dying. End quote. He elicited stories that uh, the beings, uh, that many of the students that saw the beings imparted messages related to our misuse of technology and the destruction of Earth, as mentioned in Salma, Emily, and Liesel's accounts. Now, this is very common. I mean, th- this, this is maybe the most common message imparted from aliens to human beings in the 20th century, mm-hmm. right? And... It's imparted to an impressionable group of kids who didn't have wide exposure to the UFO phenomenon. So and that's didn't interesting. Have wide exposure to the to the uh, environmental crisis phenomenon either. I mean, even more specifically and perhaps more more pointedly, they they were not they were not waking up and going to sleep every day with this issue on their mind. It was introduced by these aliens. In fact, when you see John Mack talk to them it becomes very clear that this is a concept they really hadn't given any thought to until this encounter. And Mm -hmm. now they're all walking around going, Oh my God, what about the environment? What about the earth? What about the air and the trees? You know, this was not something that they were just spouting because their parents were, you know, environmentalists. Right. Yeah, exactly. Of the children, Max said that the way in which they talked about the events that day was like uh, people who were recounting an experience that they had. 
Mac had over 40 years of experience in psychiatry at this time, and he had particularly worked with children. He was inspired to work uh, with children because of his son, who had, uh, you know, his first son who was acting out when uh, he and his wife had a second child. And it was clear that uh, he was uh, jealous of that child. So, you know, Mac had been working with kids for a long time. So, and, and even with uh, abduction cases, he had worked with a number of kids. Um, ultimately, he had planned to write a book about the case in the late 90s, but his publisher thought that it was t- that it was too narrow of a subject to cover. So instead, he wrote Passport to the Cosmos, uh, which was published in 1999 and explored the abduction phenomenon through the lens of consciousness. Cynthia Hine published two articles about the case in UFO Afro News and in her 1996 book, UFOs Over Africa. In terms of written material about this case, there isn't much. Even in uh, Passport, uh, Credo Mutwa's accounts are given more page space than the aerial school landing. So, Do you have that book? Do you have UFOs over Africa? Yeah, yeah, I do. You can buy it. It's um, You can get it anywhere. It's still in print. Uh, her first book isn't, which is, I think, UFOs, African Encounters or something like that. But it was written in like 1982. You can find it on eBay for like a couple hundred bucks, I think. In 2008, Randall Nickerson, an experiencer that John Mack had worked with, was asked by the John E. Mack Institute to do a film project about the aerial case. Uh, He has worked on it for over a decade, has interviewed most of the students, and has, by and large, finished the film, which uh, will hopefully really be coming out soon. I think he was uh, just needing a a little more funding to finish it up. It's uh, it's a film called Aerial Phenomenon, and if you Google Aerial Phenomenon, go to his website, go check him out uh, and stuff. There's trailers up there, which are pretty great. In the years since the aerial school landing, other witnesses have come forward to share their stories. Uh, Randall Nickerson, in a presentation, uh, uh, told that story about that kid who kept uh, seeing like the alien repeat play over and over again, which is is still just like utterly fascinating to me. Uh, According to Nickerson, there was a grade one teacher that claimed to have seen the object and the beings from her classroom. According to Nickerson, they refused to allow that teacher to be interviewed. And unfortunately, she died in 1996. Uh, damn it. Yeah. There's one witness. His name is Ja. Uh, he's actually employed as a producer for Barstool Sports. And he told his story on an episode of the podcast, Macrodosing. <laughs> okay, so we're solid here. Yeah. Uh, another witness, uh, Francis Chiramuda, I think is how you pronounce his last name underwent regressive hypnosis and claimed that there were three bright white spheres that glowed and shot away from the ship like magnets repelling away from each other. He also claimed to see a third being that had actually run in the direction of a nearby pool. Uh, Just to like touch on the discrepancies. um, One thing that I wanted to note is that a lot of the discrepancies in terms of the seeing the being with hair uh, largely came from the grade seven students. And I found that to be kind of interesting because the grade seven students, once she interviewed them, 
their accounts were slightly different. There was one kid who said, when I saw the being, it looked more like a shadow. It was just completely dark, which may have just been his way of saying, you know, black skin, black suit or whatever. You know, that that could just be that. But a lot of the grade seven students were the ones that said the being had long hair. Not all of them, but most of them. Uh, And one thing that I learned from watching an interview with Selma Siddick is that according to her, during that recess, the grade seven students were apparently taking a test. And I'm not saying that they didn't see anything or anything like that, but uh, if you watch them, it seems like these kids may have viewed it from a further distance away. It just seemed like uh, a lot of their uh, descriptions lacked some kind of detail. Again, I'm not trying to cast any aspersions on them or any or anything like that, because if you listen to those interviews, they, you know, those kids are sitting there struggling how to describe this stuff. They're the ones that mostly point to aliens with long hair. And that was just something I picked up. Not again, not trying to cast aspersions, you know, just something I noted. It's particularly difficult when you're dealing with schools. Mm-hmm especially, uh, well, public schools and private schools, because you're dealing with kids, these adults are being placed in a position of responsibility and protectorship over kids. And, and then suddenly something happens that brings outside eyes into how that school operates. Mm. And, and, and it's very, I can understand a teacher's hesitancy. I'll, I'll posit this. The seventh graders are all taking a test, right? It's a hot day. It's a beautiful day. Seventh graders are taking a test. As the seventh graders finish the test individually, here, I'm turning my paper in. Okay, you may go out into the yard. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm not even saying it. Yeah. But but it's like, well, it's possible. Are the seventh graders in the classroom or are they in the yard? Right. Now teachers have to sort of go, well, technically they're not supposed to be in the yard. But when they finish the test, what I don't want is a bunch of kids who have finished the test sitting next to a kid who's still doing the test. Yeah. So, so rather than it's like, okay, well, you know, read quietly, but whatever you do, don't help the kid next to you cheat. It's like, get out of here. Go, go, go in the yard. You're going to have recess in a few minutes anyway. Yeah. But this may not be part of the rules. And there may be parents who are like, wait a second, what are you telling me? My kid was out in the, in the yard playing around when they were supposed to be in class. I swear to you, this is a real thing. Right. And so, and so some of these discrepancies about where kids were, where the adults were at any given moment, I completely understand why there are weird factual gaps that don't quite line up with each other. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, before we end this thing, there are two things that debunkers point to and that I'm going to point out and I don't put a lot of I don't put a lot of stock in them first. And the thing that the, that they always uh, go to is mass hysteria. Well, I get that there have been incidents of mass hysteria in places like South Africa, or um, I think in Zimbabwe, there was like a um, kind of like a laughing thing. I forget exactly what it was. I didn't write it down, but there was like a laughing uh, like a laughing fit that was experienced by a lot of people in 1962. Okay. Um, but I think the the thing is, is like, this is something that is caused by some kind of outward stimuli. This isn't something caused by, you know, 
the, the kids themselves. This is a, a, a third party interaction with something. So to me, like maybe there is a little bit of mass hysteria, but I don't think so. I don't think like there these are, there are far fewer cases of mass hysteria reported than there are alien encounters. H- how do you use an even more rare speculative phenomenon to explain a far more common phenomenon, yeah. which people have experienced all over the world. And they're still for decades throughout history, even today and, and say, Oh, the explanation is an even more obscure phenomenon that yeah. by the way, in the very vanishingly few cases where it, 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 it seems to perhaps hold up, these are far more homogeneous. It's, it's groups of people who share so much more commonalities in terms of sex, ethnicity, culture, tribe. That is where any possible recorded case of mass hysteria takes place. You never hear it. It's it's not a thing. Yeah. It's just not a thing. So the other uh, debunking crap that people point to is hallucinations brought on by malarial vaccinations, which I don't know. No, I'm just going to say no automatically. No. Like there was a guy that wrote a paper who said, uh, who was basically trying to pin a lot of things on Africa on, you know, malarial hallucinations. And I just, no, get, get the fuck out of my face with that shit. If, if we know anything now, if we know anything now, it's that people respond to vaccines very differently. I'm not going to get into the whole anti-vaxxer, COVID anti-vaxxer people, because that's that's an entirely different subject and, and a different podcast. But among the people who are out there receiving vaccinations and, and the booster shots, um, just talk to your friends who have gotten the shots. Some people are like, oh my God, I was up all night with chills and aches and pains. And other people are like, nothing, nothing yeah. at all. And it's, the, and it's not even, it's like, we're, we both got the Pfizer. Oh, no, we both got the Moderna. We both got the J&J. You'll hear all different kinds of stories. And I know, um, I mean, ju- just to briefly talk about vaccines for a second, you know, um, the guy that <laughs> will get into my, my workout regime, Rob, because I know <laughs> you're curious. You want to know how to achieve this body. I want to know how to become the inky pool of blackness that you are. Yeah. I I get it, man. I get it. Um, The guy, my trainer, who's this amazing. Oh, here we go. Here here it goes. Uh, My trainer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll I'll send out the link later. You goddamn Hollywood folks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, when you're a guy, look, you know, we, our lives are similar. What yeah. we do for a living is accomplished by sitting in a chair. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, and I know you're, you're active at work, but basically your work is the podcast and my work is writing and we do it sitting on our ass. So the only exercise I get is if a human being is, is saying to me, all right, asshole, pick up those weights and do some reps. So that's the, and that's what this guy does for me. He's a Canadian guy. He's a great guy. And this is the kind of guy who like, Hey, I was, you know, out biking yesterday and I fell off my bike and broke three ribs, but I'm here today because I don't acknowledge physical pain of any sort. I mean, this guy is fucking rugged. He's a fucking Canadian from upcountry. He's like one of these letter Kenny guys. Mm-hmm. Anyway, 
So, so, but, but he's amazing and a wonderful guy, super smart too. Um, but, but for one thing, he's like, whenever I get a vaccine of any sort, I clear my schedule for the next day because vaccines affect me. And this is a guy who's very aware of how, you know, the world affects his physiognomy. And he's like, I do. I just, I'm one of those guys. I get a flu vaccine every year and, and I feel like shit for 24 hours. So I, I, I cancel all my appointments and I just, I take the day off. I just hang out and, and that's what I know about myself. And it's so funny because he's in way better shape than I am. But when it comes to vaccines, I have no trouble at all. I get a vaccine, uh, the yearly flu vaccine, then, then this year, the COVID vaccine and the COVID booster, no side effects whatsoever, except maybe a little soreness and that's it. And um, people respond differently. There is based on their own physiology. So it, it you can't say, well, people were getting vaccines, therefore they are all experiencing UFO phenomenon. Right. Th- that's mean, a strategy. Like mass hallucinations are just not common. Like I think one yeah, person has yeah. pointed to one and that is it. Like there are some malarial vaccines that do cause hallucinations or illusions or something like that. But one, we Among don't have some people, but not everybody. Right. Because not everyone reacts the same right. way. Right. It's, it's kind of like the infrasound stuff. If it only affects like one in five people or something like that, then the likelihood that five people are affected by it is very slim. So instead of mass hysteria and instead of assuming, oh, a vaccine is causing everyone to hallucinate, maybe we just listen to what's actually happening and try to figure backward from that and say, what the hell is happening to people? And this is a great case. I mean, again, there is no other case. This is the case. When you've got 60 kids witnessing something and 42 of them draw a picture of it with that day, Mm. then Um, something else is going on. I don't know what that thing is. I'm not, I'm certainly not preaching the extraterrestrial hypothesis, but I'm saying something's happening. And what is that thing? Right. still don't know. Uh, still don't right. Uh, according to Randall Nickerson, it wasn't just 60 students. He says it was more like 100 and that there were students that were not interviewed and they were particularly the grade one and two kids. Yeah. OK. Grade one and two. I mean, those kids can't even tell you what they have for lunch. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, rich with the kid slander. All right. Oh, uh, God, I'm telling you, those, those, those motherfuckers are bad reporters. You can't trust a goddamn word. I mean, he he speaks from experience, not just from having kids, but being a kid. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. I, I was a liar too. So what are you gonna do? So that, folks, right there is the aerial school landing—a case that is massively important to the UFO community, but feels kind of forgotten even in this day and age, given that the people that investigated it didn't write a whole awful lot about this, and that. Uh, we're waiting for that one, you know, documentary to come out. And I, I really hope that it comes out real soon. But uh, Rich, you're, you're in the writer's room for Titans season four. What else you got going on, buddy? Well, do I, must I have something else that's taking up all of my time? Professor, I must say that, that trying to write for Titans and then also prepare for a final tonight was, was put a lot on old Richie's plate. But I hope I came through for you. Um, but I will tell you that we are uh, we are work, uh, hard at work on season four. 
we are currently writing the scripts uh, for season four. We're going to start filming in uh, 2022. And we, the plan is to have season four episodes next summer. So we're, we're, we're on our way, man. We're on our way. You're on your way. So that that's good to hear. Uh, Rich, if people want to bug you on Twitter, uh, what's your handle so that they can bug you? Guys, it is so easy to bug me on Twitter. Richard Haddam at Richard Haddam. None of these cute little your UFO guy handles. <laughs> I make it real simple. If you want to know I, how simple Rich keeps it, he still has a Hotmail account. So there you go. Yes. Uh, come on, guys. You can get in touch. It ain't that hard. <laughs> so uh, if, you, if you all want to support the show, please consider leaving a rating and review on any podcasting app. That will allow it. Uh, we also have a Patreon. $3 a month will get you early releases of the episodes and bonus audio as well. Check out the link tree in the episode description to learn more and to find additional links to some of the other projects that I have going on, like the Order of Podcasters or Rolling Through the Realms, if you like uh, TTRPGs. Special thanks to Floats for the use of their song, UFO, for the intro and outro to this podcast. And our logo was designed by the great Desdemona. And finally, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies. We're on a schoolyard playground in Africa. In Gray We Trust.